Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, if you'll look for that 22nd verse. And when you found that, if you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word, let's read what God has to say to us this morning and open our hearts and minds in preparation for what He has to say. So Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 22, it says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is his head of the church and he is the savior of the body therefore just as the church is subject to Christ so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might Present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, this morning, we're about to step in some treacherous waters. For this is the exact opposite of what the culture tells us life should be. But this morning we hold firm to the fact that your Bible that we hold in our hand is your very spoken word, that your word is infallible and true. So this morning, Father, you speak through that word to our hearts. Convict us where conviction needs to be. Edify us where edification is at, Father. But most of all, you glorify yourself through this. I ask you make very little of me and very much of you this morning that you may be seen in all of your glory. This we pray in the name of the Word, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the book of Ephesians. Even as I read the passage to you today, I know it caused an emotional response within you. I know that even as I read it. For some, it was a response of anger. I understand. For some, it was a response of confusion. For others, it was a response of joy. But sadly, it may have not been for the right reasons that you were joyful. For very few, it was a proper response. When we read this chapter, this passage, we can't help but look at it with the lens of culture that we live in. When we approach it, we read it from the culture that we live in. We superimpose upon the passage the standards of our world. Looking at the passage with the lens of the world we live in gets us in quite the fix. (laughs) You see, God asks us to always look at the world through the lens of the Bible, not to look at the Bible through the lens of the world. We get ourselves in trouble when we try to take this passage worldly view
God has to say, not through what the world says about marriage. We're going to look at what the Bible says. You see, if we really believe that God has our best interest at heart, this passage should only give us one emotion, and that emotion is joy. If we really believe God has our best interest at heart, this passage should bring us joy. Joy that God so loves us that he desires for us to have this blessed life. And a blessed life is only going to come when the life is lived as God has designed it to be lived. And that's the lens that we need to approach this passage with. Believing that God is God and we are not, first and foremost. (laughs) That God alone knows what is best, even if it is countercultural to the world we live in. That the only way we can have a fulfilling life that glorifies God is to live a life of godliness. And Paul has given us quite the instruction in this part of Ephesians from the fourth chapter. Let's set this in the context. And if you remember, as we went through from the fourth chapter to here, he talked about this, this worthy walk, this, this unified uh, faith walk that we're to have as the body. Uh, we're to use our spiritual gifts, you remember. We're to edify and to lift up the body in Christ, that Christ is glorified, that the church does everything to glorify Christ, not to glorify itself. We're to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in everything that we do. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in light. We're to walk in wisdom. All those things Paul has pointed out to us. And now he moves to an instruction that God himself put in place. It's an institution that God himself put in place at the very beginning of time. God himself placed this institution of marriage there by his own sovereign will. And this morning, we're going to look at that. Why does Paul bring into discussion the marriage? That's a question that comes to mind for me. See, when most people stop and look at this text, they they immediately say, well, it's even broken down this way. It's wives against husbands. It's, It's wives should do this and husbands get off, or husbands should do this and wives get off. Yet, if you understand the context of the passage, it's not even talking about husbands and wives. Yes, husbands and wives are used as the example. But it makes absolutely no sense to look at the context when he's been talking to the church, talking about how the the body is going to glorify Christ and suddenly pulls out two individuals and puts them at odds. It makes no sense. But if you look at the context of the passage, you understand he's talked about the church and how we walk through life glorifying God. And now he comes to that thing that God made, that institution of marriage. He said, here's how you glorify God through the union of two people, a man and a woman into one flesh. See, he says there that that we're to be joined together and the whole purpose of our joining is so that God can be glorified. You see, because this marriage thing is so important to God, that's why Paul brought it into light. And if you think real hard, where does Satan most attack the world today? The institution of marriage. We see it. It's no longer kosher. It's no longer politically correct to say it's of one man and one woman. It's of any two people that love each other, regardless of the gender. Next, if we continue down the road, and we've already seen it in some oddball cases, we'll have people marrying their dogs and their cats because there is no instruction. We see people now that are doing the things that were designed to be done within marriage outside of marriage when it should be done inside of marriage. What do I speak of? Procreation. The physical unity of man and woman was designed to be placed inside of the institution of marriage only. What does that bring? 
We have disease all over the world that's caused by the promiscuity of men and women. We have things that would completely be eradicated if people would just do what God said. One man, one woman for life. AIDS would disappear from the face of the earth. Venereal diseases would be gone if we just did what God said. So why did he bring this in? Because... That's the area that Satan attacks the most because he knows if he can disrupt God's designs for marriage, he can affect the entire world. How does he do that? Because if he changes the marriage, he changes the family. If he changes the family, he changes the generations that follow. If he changes the generations that follow, he winds up changing the entire world. He starts with you, husband and wife. Because he realizes if he can mess you up, he's going to mess up your kids. If he can mess up your kids, he's going to mess up their kids. If he can mess up their kids, sooner or later he's going to have the entire world messed up. And see, what he's doing is he's chasing the thing that God loves so much that he put together and said, this is my stamp of approval on how a man and a woman should live and most glorify God. We read the passage and immediately try to find out how God's wrong. What he said is, look at it through my eyes. I loved you so much, I saved you through the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, Jesus Christ. I also loved you, man and woman, so much I put you together, myself, for my glory. We should, again, look to glorify God through our marriages. To understand the importance of the structure of these 12 verses, I think we must first understand what God intended for marriage. And believe it or not, we're not going to do it from these 12 verses. We're going to do it from where marriage was created. If you happen to have your Bible still open, flip back to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is where we see marriage show up. And I think if we understand where marriage showed up, God's purpose in marriage, we can better understand Paul's instruction for this marriage. Back in Genesis chapter 2, we see some very interesting statements. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to read real fast through those. Follow with me from verse 18 of chapter 2. And it says this, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone I will make him a helper comparable to him out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature that was its name so Adam gave names to all the cattle to the birds of the air to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into woman. And he brought her to man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We just read that somewhere, didn't we, in the book of Ephesians? And he goes on to say, and they were both naked, the man and the woman, and they were not ashamed. We see this picture. We see this picture of Adam being created. And Adam, God says there, the very first thing we notice, it says it is not good that man should be alone. So Adam was alone there. So God said, let's make these animals and we'll bring these animals before Adam. We'll let him name them and we'll see if there's anyone there that can be a help to Adam. It says that after he named all of these, there was not found a suitable helper. See, God had created this perfect paradise that we read about in chapter 1. It says at the end of each of those days that he created 
the, the different things on the different days, he said God saw that it was good. He said he looked and he saw that this was good. See, on the sixth day of creation, he decided he would make mankind mankind, which is, is us. He decided he would make us. And it says in verse 20, uh, 26 of chapter 1 there, in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. So in that first chapter, as he's creating all things, he says, Let's make man in our own image according to our own likeness. He's, the hour that he's speaking of there is the Trinity, the Godhead. We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see this meeting of the mind, so to speak. It says, let us make for ourselves this, this man. Well, we're real quick to say, well, the first thing in creation that was made in the image of God is man. And you would be absolutely correct. But it's not man as in male. <laughs> be careful. It is man as in mankind is made. And don't think that the only thing that was made in the image of God was man, because it goes on to say in verse 27, So God created in His own image, in the image of God, He created Him, male and female, He created them. So we see that, that God had said over in the, the explanation over in chapter 2 about creation, that He was speaking about what had been done in chapter 1, that I like to call the brief story of creation, and, and it says that he had made this man that couldn't find a helper. But in verse in chapter 1, it says that he had made these men and women in his own image. See, why is it important to understand that both man and woman was made in God's image? I think it will help stamp out some of the misnomer about how we read some texts like we just read in Ephesians if we understand one thing. If each of us, man and woman, are made in God's image, who's most important? No one. Even looking at the Trinity, there is no greater or no lesser. They're all God. Each of us, both man and woman, are made in the image of God. Man and woman are equal in value to God because they're each made in the image of God. No matter what this world tells you, no matter what it throws at you that says that men are superior and women are inferior, you just remember that God made each man and each woman in his image there is no superiority there is no inferiority man created that issue man decided there was superiority and inferiority not god so you have to remember we have been made to be like god but he goes on to say this in verse 28 then god blessed them he said, be blessed. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing. See, God created both man and woman in his image. He joined them together and he said, now you got a job to do. Multiply. Have others come forth from you that are going to be in the image of God. Teach them the ways of God. Also, take control over all this creation. All those things you named, Adam, you're to look over. You're to use them for your substance and for the glory of God. You're to till this earth. You're to take care of all this creation for one reason, for the glory of God, because God has made it. He placed them in this wonderful garden and said, Look, there's the two of you made in my image. Now, 
Take care of what I have made. You said he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all creation. And he goes on in verse 29, it says, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is of the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for your food. God says, you do it my way, and what's my promise to you? You'll be taken care of. My promise to you is you stay within my will, and I've got you covered. You know, it's no different today. It is absolutely no different today. There's so many times we come to God and say, God, why'd you let this happen? Can you get me out of this jam? If we'd stop and think for just a minute, God didn't put us in the jam. We did. If we'd have just done that thing which God told us to do, we'd have never got in that situation. And what did God tell him from the very beginning? I created you man and woman. I put you together. I put you over all the things that I created. And here's the promise I've got to you. You do what I say, and life's going to be beautiful. Life's going to be blessed. There's not a one of us that woke up this morning looking for less than a blessed day, did we? I never, ever get out of bed saying, God, how hard can you make it on me today? I get out of bed looking for his blessing. But you know what I know? If I don't get out of bed focused on God, chances are his blessing is going to be hard to find. Because if I do it my way, it's going to be the wrong way. You see, and he goes on to say, In verse 31 of this chapter, and this is what I love. He says in chapter 1, verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. You see, God had created his crowning jewel, mankind. He had given the task to take care of all the things that he had created. And he had said, you do that and I will bless you. And when he looked out over all things, including man and woman, that he had made in his own image, he said, this isn't just good, guys. This is real good. See, he had made for himself something that would glorify himself for all time. You see, and then chapter 2 that we read earlier gives us the detail of that particular creation story. We know that if we look in verse 4 of chapter 2 because it says this is the history of the heavens and and the earth. So it tells us right there that this is going to be the detailed description. In the detailed uh, description in chapter 2, we see that man and woman were not, first of all, created at the same time or physically in the same way. Now they were both created in the image of God, but they were created at different times and in different ways. You would say, Why is that important? You see, there's one thing I know about God, and you read it in His Word. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, you've seen it. God is a God of order. God is a God of structure. He doesn't fly by the seat of His pants. There's a reason for everything. And God created man and woman the same way as far as their their value to Him. But they created, he created them in a different way physically and at a different time for a specific purpose. It's important to realize that God did it because God is perfect and that his will is perfect. He didn't do it to make one lesser than the other or one greater than the other. He did it so that there would be specific roles that would be taken, but the value would not be lessened on either half. That's something you need to get into your mind because the world's not going to tell you that. The world's going to tell you the guy at the top has the most value. The guy at the bottom has the least value. The one with the nicest home must be more valuable than the guy that has a a mobile home. The guy riding the moped is going to be of less value than the guy driving the Mercedes. 
Yet when God looks at you, you're made in his image. Each of you are of equal value. Yes, you may have different roles that you play in whatever the situation may be. Look at the church. There's 60, 75 of you today listening and one talking. We play different roles. But there's not a single one of you that God doesn't love the same way that he loves me. There's not a single one of you that God doesn't value in the exact same way he values me. There's not a single one of you that he decided when his son went to the cross, he was going to leave the blood away from you and let you go to hell. He hung his son on the cross for every one of us because he loves each one of us equally because each one of us are of the same value to him. You see verse 18 there told us in that second chapter that that Adam was alone. And it says for the very first time in Scripture, the words, it is not good. See, we need to think about marriage and the way it was originally created. See, because man had taken Adam and formed him from the dust of the earth. He had breathed into him life. Yet when he had breathed into him life, he made a statement. It is not good. Good that man is alone. There's not another single thing in creation that he said that about. He did make both male and female animals, male and female birds, rabbits, chickens. He made all those things, even in plants. You see, there are male and female plants. That's how they pollinate different things. But he didn't look at those and say, it's not good that they don't have another. But with man, he said, it's, it's not good. It's the first time he said not. See, God in all of his sovereignty announced that it was not good for man to be alone. He's not saying that every man should be married to be good. Not the point. He's not saying that every man that is single is not good. (laughs) He's making a statement that points to a bigger picture. And look at the bigger picture. Is God alone? Has God ever been alone? See, from... Eternity passed before time ever began. God has had a triunity. There's been three in one. God has always had God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If anybody knows what it means to have companionship, it would be God. You see, the bigger picture is what he's doing in creation is pointing to God. And when he said he made God in his own image... I think he's pointing us back to this triune God. See, there is no other God that has ever been professed to be a God that is more than one person. You ever heard him talk about Muhammad and his son and his spirit? You ever heard him talk about Buddha and his son and his spirit? No, they may set up extra gods or maybe thousands of gods. But none of them are unified into one other than the almighty God, the only God, the great I am. And see, when he points this together, he makes this picture of the Trinity for us. See, one of the most important things to understand about the Trinity of God is that he himself has never been alone. And you may ask, what's so important about that? We all would say that God is a God of love, correct? Would anybody argue that God's not a God of love? I mean, it tells us God so loved us, he sent his only begotten son to die upon a cross for our sins. So there's love. How does an individual who has no one to love understand what love even is? But see, God's known from eternity past what love is. Why? Because since before time ever started, there's been a love within the Trinity, the unity of the Godhead. This love has always been there. See, we're not created so that God can know love. 
we're created so that God can show love. God already knew what love was before you ever breathed your first breath. And see, what God did in creating us and placing us together in the unity of marriage is not only demonstrating his love to us, but allowing us to demonstrate our love to someone else that is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, just like the picture of this trinity. See, love has for eternity past existed within the trinity. How do we know? John 15, 9 says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Jesus himself said, The Father has loved me. We see the Holy Spirit. We know that he knows what love is because what does it say one of the fruits or the fruit of the Spirit is? Love. How can you give something you've never received? You see, in Galatians, it speaks plainly about the fact that that is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and that comes from the Trinity. So love has always existed. And because the the Trinity of the Godhead, God the Father, knows that man did not need to be alone, he understood that man needed a helper. He needed someone to be with him. And it tells us there in verse 18 of that second chapter that he is going to make for him a helper comparable to him, a helper comparable to God. God knew that in order to complete his task, to be able to do that which he was about to assign him, that Adam needed to fill in some gaps, some deficiencies in himself, so to speak. I would dare say anyone who's been married for very long has come to realize that you have weaknesses, both men and women. And if you look at your spouse, a lot of times they fill in those gaps for you. My wife will tell you that my list of weaknesses are way greater than my list of strengths. She carries a heavy burden. If there's not anything else you got to pray for, pray for that woman. Because she's filling in all of my deficiencies. And when I said that, some of you started writing down, pray for Wendy hourly. But we do that. We're made to be helpers. We're made to be joiners. There is oftentimes that I have the greatest of plans in my head. And it only takes five minutes talking to my beautiful, sweet wife about it for me to realize that was the dumbest idea I've ever had. Why? Because Wendy is my completer. She's my helper. She's the one that rounds out those rough edges. You know, without her around, you guys would really be in trouble. <laughs> but she has, she's been made and placed into my life as a completer and a helper for me. And you see, God said that he recognized man needed this helper. He goes on to tell us in, in 19 uh, through 20, God tells us that he brought all those animals around, that Adam looked at all these animals, he named all these animals, he recognized what they were, he gave them names according to their abilities, and that at the end of the day, none, none could be found that could complete Adam. There was something within him that an animal couldn't overcome. There was something within him missing that there was no bird or fish that could fill in the gap. And you see, it says that he looked at each, he named each, he knew their duties, yet there were none that could just fulfill who he was to be in God. And it says in verse 21 through 22 that God fixed that problem. God himself solved the issue. See, for God took Adam, he gave the first anesthesia dose on the face of the earth and putting Adam asleep. He took from him through the first surgery, by the way, a rib, even sewed him up, did a good job of sewing him back up, and he took this rib, and he formed from that rib another person. 
Just like God had done with the animals, he brought that person before Adam when Adam awoke for Adam to name. I find it interesting that he says she's woman. I think particularly that the Bible understates that. I really do. Because I believe if I had been all alone and had fallen asleep and woke up and saw my wife, I would have said, whoa, man. <laughs> when I said, and I think that's what Adam may have done. He looked and said, wow. See, there's this creation that God has made. And Adam knew because he had named all the animals. He knew he wasn't complete and he immediately knew, here's my completer. See, for Adam, he didn't see her as the woman to do the dishes or cook dinner. He didn't see her as being the one to run the kids back and forth. He didn't see her to be the one to wait at the door with a smile when he came home in the afternoon. What did Adam see her as? He tells us in verse 23, he saw her as a piece of himself, his own bone, his own flesh. And because she came from him, he didn't say, I'm going to name her tree or fish. She's part of me. She is woman. She is woman. And see, I find it very interesting that he would name her that because everything else that he named, he named according to their duties. When I say tiger, you think of something striped. When I say horse, you think of something to pull a buggy or ride. When I say tree, you think of something growing with leaves or, or pine needles on it. When I say bird, you think of something flying in the air. When I say woman, you should think of the completer of man. Because she was made to be that completer, that helper. And you see, the second thing that we see there as we read through those texts very quickly is that we see that God had this plan in place. Just like he had put creation in place, just as he decided that animals would be there, water would be there, plants would grow, just as he decided that man would oversee creation, he had a very specific decision that he had made, a plan that he had made for man and woman. And he tells us there in verse 24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, the world has told us that marriage is all about what we can get from something. You think about it. I've had many people come and talk to me about getting married and when you really nail it down to their reasoning for being married is they're lonely. They want a companion. They want a tax break because <laughs> our government's been nice enough maybe to give us one if we're married. They reason within their mind it's cheaper for two to live together than the two to live separate. They reason within their mind, you know what? We get a break on our health insurance if we get married. <laughs> We, we have some sort of security if there's two of us there in the house. and Plus the fact, you know, still, even though they say it's okay to live together, morally, all of my friends or even the ones at the church would feel better about me if we were married. Those are all viable reasons, I suppose, to be married. But they're not godly reasons. None of those are godly reasons. You see... God made the institution of marriage with a purpose. The purpose of the institution of marriage is for His glory and His glory alone. There's only one reason we're left on this earth after we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 
And that's so we can glorify God by the spreading of the gospel through our lives and our words and our actions. I've already told you that Satan's greatest attack on the world today is through the marriage. So what do you think can be the greatest glory to God in this world today? Your marriage. Looking at the duties of each part and saying one is greater than the other is not glorifying to God. You see, there's no more public display of God's mercy and grace than than the joiner of two people into one. I mean, let's face it. Two people living together for a lifetime? That can only be accomplished by God. Most of us can't even keep a friend for 10 or 15 years. We can't keep a job for 30 or 45 years. We... I mean, take into account that when you join the two people together, you're bringing the baggage of both, the sins of both, the life of both together. The only way that I know a man and a woman can stay joined in marriage for a lifetime is by God's mercy and grace. I know you look at poor sweet Wendy and think she's such a lovely person, and she is. I'm going to pay for this dearly today, and you're going to get to see her wrath. I hate to tell you, we don't always get along. I know you find that as a shock. I'm so lovable and adorable. I know you find that as a shock. We don't always see eye to eye. We don't always want to do the same things. Sometimes I have crazy notions that she doesn't agree with. She's quick to tell me. But she also realizes at the end of the day, if God said we're going to do something, I'm responsible for us as a family doing that. She also understands that whether she agrees with it or not, if she understands that I'm following the leadership and the will of God, she is agreeable to that. How, do I have an example I can give you? I absolutely do. Ask her one day how, what she thought about me becoming your pastor. She was in no hurry. <laughs> Matter of fact, I believe when she said I needed to call the church, the next thing out of her mouth was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth because she was crying because she was not ready for that move. But you know what she knew? She knew God had called me to do that. And you know what she did? She said, if God's called you, I'm with you. You see, she's a completer for me. My ministry would be nothing without her. My life would be nothing without her. I couldn't imagine being married to anyone else. I mean, I'd have to train somebody all over again. But when you look at marriage, you've got to understand God's just as sovereign in your marriage as He is in your salvation. God has designed you. God put you together in your mother's womb. God knew you before you ever drew your first breath. You know what else God knew about you? One day He was going to join you to someone else. He was going to make from the two of you one body. Sad to say, the divorce rate in America has been over 50% for some time. It's been over 50% for some time. If you're divorced this morning, I'm not beating you up. That's not my job. I'm also sad to say, the divorce rate within the church has been near or at 50% for some time. Which tells me we don't look at marriage the way God looks at marriage. Because God said... A man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. The only way I know to do away with flesh is death. He didn't put two things together for them to one day kill each other or themselves or dissolve the marriage. He put marriage together to glorify himself. See, he told us there that we are equal. We're bone of bone, flesh of flesh. He told us that he's instructed man to leave his wife and come to his or leave his father and mother and come to his wife as one unit. What does that signify for us? 
It signifies a man leaving the leadership of his mother and father, which if you've read a little further in the Bible, you will understand it tells us in the Ten Commandments that we are to honor our mother and father. And it signifies a man leaving that relationship of honoring his mother and father as him being the head and coming into a relationship with his wife to now be the head of that family, to be the head, to take the leadership role in that family, to care for her and to cling to her as if she were his body, it goes on to say. And in Ephesians tells us particularly. You see, it is to... The joining together is to glorify God in all we do. See, it takes a heart that's been changed by the love of God to fully devote itself to another person's well-being ahead of their own. I don't know a single person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that would put you ahead of them. See, the world says, let me get all I can get for me. God says, give all you can give for someone else. He says, if you want to be at the head of the line, you must be at the back of the line. He says, everyone should come ahead of you. You should do as Jesus did. Jesus left heaven to come here for you. Are you willing to leave all the things that the world says marriage should be to do it God's way? Which will put you at the back of the line as far as the world's concerned. But when God says to glorify Him, He says we do that by picking up our cross and dying to ourselves daily. If there's any place that you need to make sure that you pick up your cross and die daily to self, it's in your marriage. Many a marriage has been ruined because one person won't give up what they desire and put the other person first. Yet God put it together so that it is a unit that glorifies Him. Very quickly, because we're out of time, I'm going to read one passage to you out of Ecclesiastes. It's a beautiful passage. I happen to be instructed on preaching a wedding on. I'd never looked at it this way, but it says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. It says, Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by Another two can withstand, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, it gives us an idea of what marriage is when it talks about this friendship Solomon's writing about. For it says two are better than one because there's a great reward for their labor. Two people can accomplish more than one in their labor. It also says that if one falls, another can lift you up. If you happen to be alone and you fall and you can't get up, you need someone there. It's another beautiful picture of helping each other in marriage. It goes on to say, two can lie down and keep warm. See, two can be companions to each other during the hard times. And then it goes on to say, one may be able to be overpowered, but two can withstand. Satan is attacking your marriage every day. If the two of you are living according to God's instruction, the way he put marriage together, the two of you can withstand. And that's the picture. But he ends in this, and this is the significance of the passage. He says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. What's a threefold cord? If you have a cord of two strands, 
it could easily be pulled apart. A cord of three strands, and you now have parachute rope that's able to hold a parachute, that's able to pull a truck. Because three cords are harder to break than two cords. And I find it interesting he puts it in that passage. It really points out to me what marriage really is. See, marriage is not the joining of two. The marriage is the joining of three. There's a man, there's a woman, and there's God. You see, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks when we go back to the Ephesians passage. We must glorify God in our marriage. Why? Because our marriage is where Satan's attacking. By us to be able to stand up and glorify God through our marriage, we show him for the Almighty God that he is. But only if he's part of that marriage. You see, the Bible tells us that God is the head of man. Period. None of us would argue that point. In the same way, it says man is the head of woman. Period. There's no argument. But it goes on to say, woman is the helpmate, the completer. There is nothing in that that says man and woman are of lesser value, but it does say we are of different purpose in that marriage. I think to fully understand what Paul said to us in the book of Ephesians, we must within our mind grasp what God intended for marriage to be in the first place. God intended marriage to be the joining of two people together, with him as the head, the man as the head of a woman responsible for everything that goes on with her, and woman to be a completer of man. When that picture is lived out in the world, guess what the world sees? God. And that's the purpose. In two weeks we'll talk about it as individual pieces of man and woman. This morning as we close, because I'm already over, I just want to ask you this. How's your marriage? How's your marriage? As I read that this morning, did you stop and think, you know what, hmm, i got some work to do. I hope you did, because we all do. We all do because Satan's attacking us. We're going to look at a couple of weeks from now exactly how that happened. But you know this morning you may be a believer. You may know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your spouse may also know Jesus as his or her Lord or Savior. But when you look at your marriage... You think, I wonder what the world notices about my God by how I live. You see, because how you treat your husband or your wife and how you live out in the world, the marriage bond, tells the world a whole lot about your God. Maybe this morning you would just like to say, God, you know what, I've come up short. I've come up short in a few things. Maybe this morning you need to look at that person that's sitting next to you, your husband or your wife, and say, honey, I need your forgiveness. She'll know what it is, trust me. She'll know. He'll know. Maybe this morning you need to get that relationship right so the world sees your relationship with God in the right aspect. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.